Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's continue our focus on vaccine passports. I want to bring in Stephen Thomas. He's the CEO of TPT Global Tech, uh, uh, and they are, or TPT's MedTech, is developing vaccine passport and COVID health technology that's currently operational in one of my favorite places in the world, <laughs> Jamaica, Mon, in the international uh, airport there in Montego Bay. Travelers can move about safely and freely, I guess, if, if, if this technology works out. So, Stephen, what are you guys doing? Hey, thank you for having me on this morning. I appreciate being on, on the show, and uh, we're excited. Uh, we're doing some great stuff, man. You know, we, uh, we're a publicly traded company here in San Diego, California. You have to say we're a small company with big ideas. And uh, we have developed an end-to-end uh, COVID uh, management uh, solution technology platform, you know, where we create uh, mobile labs out of shipping containers where we actually do the testing for COVID as well as vaccinations in our labs. And we've also developed a software technology platform called ClickPass where we're able to <clears throat> do the testing as well as the vaccination tracking, tracking and deliver a digital passport system. And our system is up and running. You know, we launched this back in August of 2020. So we're the first company to actually put this out into the global marketplace. We're, and we're really excited to, uh, to be the first to do something like this. And as you mentioned, you know, Jamaica SafeMon, we, we are up and running in, in Jamaica at the uh, Montego Bay Airport. Uh, and some of the, um, the resorts like Sandals uh, in the island. I think we've got a total of about 18 different testing uh, locations on the island that we're in the process of onboarding. So it's a very exciting, you know, time for our publicly traded company and what we're doing, you know, out here in San Diego and throughout the United States as well. All right, Stephen, give us a sense of kind of the deployment of your technology, because I know there's a lot of solutions out there, but there's also a lot of you know, frustration that the testing capabilities and the testing tracking in the United States, much less the rest of the world, you know, hasn't really been as robust as we would have liked. Give us a sense of kind of where you guys are. Well, what we what we like to think of, kind of being one of the first to put this out, is that we have the Indian solution. So what we're able to do is we're able to either test in our own uh, lab, mobile labs, or we work with partner labs, right? And they take that information and that's uh, delivered through our QuickPass uh, technology platform to the end customer sub- subscriber. So what happens is you go to one of our locations or one of our partner locations, you get tested or you get the vaccination. We track that information and we send you a digital report via uh, either the internet or to your phone, right? And it's on a centralized platform. So it's an amazing situation where, you know, you're not bringing two or three different companies together to try to deliver uh, the solution, which could create, uh, uh, you know, some types of uh, technology issues when you're bringing multiple companies together. So we're an end-to-end solution, and I think it works incredibly well. And uh, we're excited of the results that we're having in Jamaica. You know, when I was down there and we were onboarding it the first day, you know, there was like two, three hundred people in line. They had all the paper, and there was the nurses, and so they got all that information. And by the time we left, you know, it was just running so smooth, and they, they would come to the airport you know, download the uh, the Quick Pass app, fill out the information inside of the app, show their QR code. The nurses would do their test, uh, and then within you know 15 minutes, they would get the results. Walk up to uh, Delta or American Airlines, 
show their test report digitally on their phone. You know, the airlines know that it's secure because it's all HIPAA compliant, secured, uh, de-identified information, except for if the person wants to actually show their ID, there is a function where they hit a button and the ID pops up on the screen so that that airlines or, or cruise line or sporting event can actually verify that it's the actual person's phone and the person who actually has the test results and be able to verify that. So it's an exciting uh, scenario that we put together. I'm going to tell you offline about the sweetest spot in Jamaica. I don't want (laughs) other people to know. It's like a secret destination. But um, you mentioned HIPAA. And as someone who uh, I like to travel a lot, I get in a lot of motorcycle accidents and I hate paperwork. HIPAA is like the bane of my existence. What is it like working with this kind of regulation? Well, you know what? We have a fantastic development team, and uh, we are actually part of uh, the whole Google backend HIPAA compliant engine. So we work very closely with Google, and that's why we're, we're HIPAA client. And so it makes it a lot easier for us to be able to do what we do. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's been a, actually a good experience. A uh, little, 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 some pain points, but we were able to work through it, and we have a secured technology platform. All right, Steve, where are you in terms of some maybe some other airports, some other airlines, some other you know uh, clients that you might be signing up for your technology? Well, you know, there's other Caribbean islands that we're in the process right now of uh, bringing up. Uh, for example, the Bahamas, Turks and Caicos. Uh, we're talking with Trinidad. We're talking with uh, Puerto Rico. So we're pretty excited about that as well. You know, what's really interesting, you know, we're in Miami. We have our mobile labs uh, at the Dayland Mall and one of the Walmart parking lots in Miami. Uh, we just uh, entered into an agreement with a national parking lot company. Believe it or not, they've got over 5,000 parking lots across the United States, and they've offered those parking lots to us to, to, to bring COVID testing and point-of-care testing to their communities. It's a very interesting concept with, with, uh, with this parking lot company. I was very pleased that they reached out to us because I think it's going to be a fantastic partnership for us. To be able to be able to expand this technology across the United States, because look, it's not just for the airlines; it's also for restaurants, it's for yep. concerts, it's for you know schools, colleges. To be able to back to sporting events, you know, you get tested, you show up yep. to a, a, a stadium, you you show your QR code, and that stadium or that team or whatever right. away team know that those fans coming into that game have all been tested in a 24, 48-hour period. So the idea is that everybody in that sporting event is COVID-free. For example, this summer in Tunica, Mississippi, uh, we're working with the the Chamber of Commerce there, and we're doing a concert on the Mississippi River this summer. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Good luck to your company, Stephen Thomas, CEO of TPT Global. I want to bring in Satish Jindal, president of SJ Consulting, and talk a little bit about... What's going on with this big ship in the Suez Canal? Satish, I know it's huge, right? It's a quarter mile long and it's 200,000 tons, whatever that means. Um, (laughs) Why is it stuck in so hard? Can't they just get some boats and a rope and like pull it out? The boats (laughs) will be getting pulled towards the ship rather than pulling the ship away. (laughs) It, it, It is a huge task. It is so heavy that... The tugboats are not going to make it, in my view. They will need to start getting some of the containers off that ship to reduce the weight on it, and then they will have some success. It is not an easy task. All right, Satish, the image that is in my mind is the one where we have all seen 
is literally this monstrous container ship, uh, its bow buried into the, uh, you know, the bank of this canal, and this little teeny tiny backhoe with a couple of guys <laughs> trying to dig it out. It just doesn't look like the canal was prepared for anything like this. Why was that? Well, there are a couple of factors. One is the sizes of ships have gotten big over time, and they've never had to experience it. Uh, the maximum ship that used to travel a few years ago would be 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 containers, and now they are up to 18 and 20,000. So they are much bigger in size, and that means they're also heavier, and when they are heavier, they tend to go further below the level of the water, and they then are hitting the surface that they didn't imagine would be happening, and there may be some erosion taking place that is causing that uh, soil to move further into the canal that has caused this to happen. Satish, Twitter is having a field day. Uh, The guy with a digger um, has an account on Twitter now. Parikh Patel, probably my favorite Twitterer, has... Uh, published a bunch of schematics as to how they could deal with this. Even Ivan the K says this is bad, um, bad risk management. They should have had a backup canal. In seriousness, how big is this problem? Try and put it at a scale for us. Well, for one, there is no option to have a backup canal. Whoever thinks that is, <laughs> think they don't know about joking. shipping. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, China is trying to have a backup canal to the Panama on the other end, and it is going to be decades away, okay? So this is not something they could have anticipated. It's easy to do Monday morning quarterbacking on it. At this point, they need to look at getting the weight of the chip down from all the containers that are on it, and then they will have ability to push it such that at least it can not be blocking the entire, and at least one lane can continue as opposed to them moving in both directions. All right, so... What do you believe is – is this simply unload the ship, get some bigger tugs in there? If that's, in fact, the case, how many days slash weeks do you think we're looking at here? I think they should be able to within a week or 10 days. If they move quickly on it and and do what the professionals know needs to be done, uh, within, and there is urgency because uh, the people who manage the Suez Canal are losing revenue that they get paid for every ship that goes through. So there is incentive on everyone's part, including Evergreen, to get this thing, fiasco, off their uh, scene and away from the media. Could the same thing happen in the Panama Canal? You bring up one of the other key waterways in um, in global logistics. What are, the, what are the differences between the Suez and the, the Panama Canal? The one difference between the two major one is that the two water bodies that Panama Canal connects are not at the same sea level. There's a 30-foot difference between the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific at that place where the two openings of the canal connect. And they use locks, gates, basically. I've seen it myself. I've been there where they fill the water to raise the ship up to connect with one side or to lower it on the other side. So... If something like this was to happen in Panama, they would be better prepared to deal with it. Suez doesn't have that option. So it's interesting, Satish. I mean, is there an argument to be made that ships have gotten too big for our canals? 
not just for the canals, they've gotten too big for the ports. And they even gotten too big for the supply chain because when you have to load a ship with 18,000, 20,000 containers, it takes several days or weeks. So the merchandise that was prepared and needed to be in the showrooms or stores and with consumers are sitting at a port for 10, 12, 15 days to be loaded on a ship and then traveling, and they travel at a slower pace because of the heavier Mm. weight. So you are extending the supply chain. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I may add that you know that there was a similar thing happening in the airline, Airbus 380, double-decker with 800 passengers, where that plane is had its day, it's going to die, and there will be no more A380. Same thing, I am absolutely glad that you're raising the topic. This, the ships have gotten too big. Wow, fascinating. Satish Jindal, president of SG Consulting, we appreciate your thoughts there. We have the CEOs of Facebook, Alphabet, and Twitter. They are testifying, they will testify before Congress uh, today, uh, talking about social, you know, privacy, data security, and the roles that they may have played in the uh, capital insurrection in January. Let's get a preview of what we might hear. Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow, uh, based in New York City. In full disclosure, Social Flow is a platform used by Bloomberg for social media purposes. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. Is this going to be just another, I guess, uh, show uh, by politicians, or can anything substantive get done at these hearings, do you think? I sure hope something substantive can get done. I mean, the show is, of course, part of it. Congressional hearings are are part spectacle by design. But I am really curious to see whether we can get past that angry shaking of fists at tech CEOs phase of things and really get into it. And I think what you're going to see here is how much research the staffs of these uh, representatives have done, right? There's a lot of staff work required to come up with really intelligent and thoughtful questions. And and hopefully we'll get a signal that they're ready to move beyond just talking and shaking their fists and and start to actually propose some solutions. I often get the feeling that the staff knows a heck of a lot more than the representatives (laughs) um, for whom they work. Uh, Absolutely. Right. I mean, sometimes I lose my faith in government when I watch these things because it really doesn't seem like these elected officials are prepared at all to run a country, let alone a hearing. Um, What do you think needs to be done about Facebook, about Google? I mean, these huge platforms certainly have uh, some, some real dominance, you know, bordering on antitrust issues. They do. And I think, you know, you you mentioned the exact right word. I think antitrust really is the foundational issue, because if you look at what people object to, it's primarily around size, right? You know, these big, giant tech platforms, they're so huge. They're so hard to control. I mean, the size, honestly, is at the root of many, many of these complaints. And, and I think because of that, we tend to overemphasize the role of the platform and underemphasize the overall political situation. I mean, if today's hearing is around misinformation, and obviously the, the insurrection and the events at the Capitol on January 6th are, are huge. But I mean, do you really think that big tech caused that problem? I, I don't think most people believe tech caused it. They believe they contributed to it. They may not believe they responded you know, as effectively as they could have. But I, I think we, we just tend to overemphasize what Facebook or Google or, or Twitter should do because of their size. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading uh, Jack Devine's new book. Jack Devine was a former senior uh, person at the CIA back in the Cold War, and he's got a new book out talking about uh, you know how these platforms have been used by the Russians to influence the 2016 election and how it's a big, big issue. So there's a national security aspect to this. Um, if I were in Congress, that would be where I would focus. Um, do you think that's going to be raised as a big issue here today? I tend to doubt it because it's such a partisan issue. Remember, you know, it used to be just as uh, as easy uh, to paint Russia as a villain as anybody, right? And look at the political situation over the past you know, three, four years. Though Russia was not, you know, the the villain. In fact, you know, a lot of people would say that Russia is not an issue at all. It's all about China. So I there I would agree with you 100 percent that the national security is a huge issue, and and any adversary. Uh, foreign or domestic, if you will, is going to use the platforms and tools available to them. I, I think the other thing that we need to get into, you know, you've heard and talked about the Section 230 reform quite a bit. You know, the, the idea that platforms are not liable for what happens, and that seems morally offensive to a lot of people. I'm really, really curious now that President, former President Trump has said he's considering starting his own social network. Section 230 is the biggest friend you could imagine to a startup social network. So I'm interested to see whether Republicans actually go very aggressively towards Section 230. I I would be willing to guess that we will see a lot less enthusiasm from the Republican side of things to talk about Section 230 today. So I'm I'm really looking to see how that plays out. When you look at former President Trump's influence, Jim, uh, has it grown since he left office? Has it uh, subsided? What do you see? It has very much subsided. It's funny. We do something we call the Trump Index every single day where we basically just go and look at, okay, what kind of media attention is former President Trump getting? And, you know, whereas during, uh, you know, his presidency, it'd be somewhere around a 50 out of 100. You know, now he's down around a five out of 100. And and that makes sense. You know, former presidents typically, um, you know, fade from public view. They don't uh, do things and they they. Uh, you know, they, they sort of retire from public life. And we're seeing that. I think what everybody is, is thinking about, though, is, is he going to make a comeback? And, and have we heard the last of him? And yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't predict that we've heard the last of him. Jim, is there, I guess there's been some talk that he may consider uh, starting up a, a online network or maybe a cable network. I mean, what, what are you hearing? Yeah, it's, well, I think everybody is, is speculating about that. I think he is floating trial balloons. Part of what's happening is these people are saying, oh, he's going to start a media company. He's going to start a social network. He's going to do this. And then let's see the reaction. You know, One of the things he really is quite effective at is controlling the narrative. You know, we always like to say, you know, to the degree he had a superpower, it was not the ability to tweet. It was the ability to get the media companies to cover what he tweeted. So I think you're seeing a very carefully orchestrated floating of trial balloons about these things and then just sort of see what the uh, how well they land with the marketplace, how well they resonate. At first, it was going to be he's definitely going to create a social network. And then he himself said, well, I'm thinking about creating a social network. I think the media companies fall into the same category. So I, I don't know that he knows what he's going to do next, but I would expect to continue to see these trial balloons floated. Jim, thanks so much. Great to get some time with you. Really fascinating stuff you're doing there over at Social Flow. Jim Anderson is the CEO. All right, let's revisit a story that was very much in the headlines recently when Walmart said they were getting into the financial services business. Remember when they were going to they are they announced they were starting a fintech startup in the US and they hired the head of Goldman Sachs Consumer Bank to lead it. Let's 
revisit that story, see how it's going. Uh, we welcome Sarah Halzak. She covers all things retail for Bloomberg Opinion. Sarah, this isn't the first time, as I recall, that a big retailer wanted to get into the financial services business. Uh, Tesco, I remember, the big UK retailer tried this a while ago, maybe a decade ago. It didn't go so well. What's Walmart's strategy? Yeah, so Tesco, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis, had this insight that, you know, the trust in big banks was not super high and that, um, you know, perhaps the affinity and loyalty its customers had for its brand would create an opening for them to really disrupt the banking sector. And fast forward to today, and, you know, Tesco's banking arm is profitable, but it hasn't exactly lit the world on fire, right? And so that's kind of the cautionary tale for Walmart here is, can it avoid some of those mistakes that Tesco made? And can it, um, you know, as opposed to just having this sort of nice-to-have side business, can it really make uh, these fintech offerings um, really disruptive for the sector and an important part of its overall revenue and profit stream? My first move would be to hire a bigwig banker from Goldman Sachs. Did Tesco try that? <laughs> <laughs> they, they did not. And look, I think that showed people how deadly serious Walmart is about this initiative. And perhaps people should have read between the lines that was the case already. Um, the fact that when they initially announced this startup, they put um, their U.S. CEO, John Ferner, and their CFO, Brett Biggs, on the board. Uh, clearly, they would not devote the time of people that seen here in their operation to this startup if they didn't see it as utmost importance. And I think the Goldman hire uh, really announced that in big, bold letters to the rest of the world. All right, Sarah. So again, Tesco and Sainsbury in the UK tried this. What went wrong or what maybe didn't go as right as they hoped? Yeah. So I think one of the big things was they tried to go it alone. Um, they, uh, after having in the 90s done joint ventures on things like credit cards and such, uh, in this post-financial crisis foray, they tried to do it all by themselves. And the problem was they got distracted from their core grocery operations and Aldi and Lidl were able to uh, kind of make their way in there and take some market share. You can see the clear parallels there to Walmart's situation. It's in this generational battle with Amazon, right, to uh, defend the business at its physical stores and play offense in e-commerce. And if it uh, gets distracted by this shiny object of the fintech, that could be problematic. I think one thing that's good about how Walmart has set this up um, is unlike Tesco, it's not going it alone. It did do this as a joint venture uh, with Ribbit Capital, a firm that has extensive experience backing fintech companies. And um, Walmart hasn't said where the new startup will be located, but I will wager it's not going to be located in Bentonville. It's not going <laughs> to be uh, near the Walmart mothership. I think it will be in New York or Silicon Valley, um, both because that will be better for recruiting tech talent, but also because I think it does draw this bright line um, that makes it harder for, uh, you know, the main retail team to get distracted. So what's it going to look like? I mean, Tesco, uh, you pointed out, offered credit cards and certain banking services to consumers. I know Ribbit um, helps people like buy now, pay later, or gives these installment plans. What, what are we going to get from Walmart as a finance offering? So I would bet what we're not going to see is physical bank branches. Uh, I think that's a pretty outmoded way of thinking about banking, even though Walmart clearly has uh, such an ability to do so with, you know, over 4,000 stores in the U.S. But I don't think that's where they're going to be focused. Um, you know, as CFO Brett Biggs has said, think more sophisticated, more digital. Um, and so 
I expect uh, they'll be focused on things that, you know, you can do on your smartphone. And look, you know, Walmart's customer base uh, is a low-income consumer. Um, Many of them are unbanked or underbanked. This is traditionally a segment that has not been well-served by the established uh, banking industry. And I bet you can expect to see products that are sort of focused on that customer set's specific needs. Also, you know, Walmart employs over a million people. Um, and I could see uh, it trying to make some products that appeal directly to its associates, um, maybe, you know, uh, ways to uh, distribute their paychecks or that kind of thing. Sarah, what's the sense of timing here for Walmart? Is this Have they laid out any, any uh, timing parameters here for rolling this out or when it might reach scale? They have not. They've been pretty tight-lipped about it. But look, I think uh, Walmart is urgently trying to find uh, revenue streams and profit streams that are not its core retail business. We see this in other areas, right? They are trying to build up an advertising business as well, um, and they're doing more forays into healthcare services. And they're doing that to uh, – they see the model that Amazon has had, and they, they sort of want um, a piece of that. Amazon, uh, you know, its retail business is what it's uh, perhaps most well-known for, but its cloud computing services have been a core way of uh, boosting profitability. And now it has, um, through its advertising business, yet another really profitable revenue stream. And I think Walmart knows that if it wants to continue to have rock-bottom prices – but subsidize free shipping to all of our doorsteps in a more e-commerce-centric world, it is going to have to figure out other ways to find unlock revenue and profit, and that's what the FinTech startup is all about. It's pretty interesting that they have – don't they have like 150 million people going into Walmart every year, like separate customers? That's half the country. <laughs> every week, I think, is actually um, the, wow. that, that figure globally. Um, and so, yes, they have an extraordinary amount of data about But no customers, loyalty right? cards. There's no, um, you know, there's no like Starbucks card for Walmart. You can't get your 10th coffee free or anything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So they don't have – and look, that was something the U.K. supermarkets did have, right, is that traditional loyalty card that you swipe at every purchase. Um, so Walmart does not have that. That's been kind of anathema to their everyday low price model. Um, but they do have a tremendous amount of data about what you do in stores. They have a tremendous amount of data about what you do on its website. And they're about to have a new uh, sort of data bit to monetize in their Walmart Plus program. Um, so this is a new thing they've rolled out. It's sort of their answer to Amazon Prime. It's a $98 a year membership where uh, you get free grocery delivery and other uh, things, free shipping, no minimum, certain other perks. Um, and that will be uh, another way to sort of learn about its customers, especially its most loyal customers. Um, and that should just be yet another bit of data that it can theoretically harness to figure out what kind of products make sense for its consumer um, and what kind of products they're looking for. All right. Very interesting stuff. Uh, Sarah wrote this opinion piece with Andrea, Andrea Felstead. So Sarah Halzak and Andrea Felstead can be found on Bloomberg Opinion. Just type OP. I and go. I wonder how much of Walmart's stuff is sitting in the Suez Canal right now. They probably have a bunch of stuff. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.